Father. Father, we have gathered in this place because of you. You're the reason that brings us all together. So many of us from different backgrounds, different cultures, different languages. And Lord, there's really nothing that can bring us together like this in a peaceful way other than you. Uh, you have a way to transcend all things because you are so worthy. And Lord, we want you to be honored today. We want to marvel at you. We want to think about you. We want our thoughts to be directed toward you. We don't want to put them on any man or human. We want it solely to be upon you. And Lord, um, we realize that what is happening here today is of uh, great, has a great gravity, Lord, as it is um, dealing with people's uh, eternal souls. And uh, Lord, we don't take that lightly. And so we asked, ask that you uh, would work by your Spirit's presence among us that you would be honored and glorified, that people would understand what you've done, that it would motivate us toward right living, that we might consider things afresh and anew, and that, Lord, lives would be changed uh, for the good, uh, to be on the path of righteousness. And, Lord, no human can do that. No man can do that. Only you can. So we trust not in human ability or effort. We pray, Lord, that uh, I would diminish and that you would increase. That only you are what's on the forefront of people's minds as they listen to your word explained. Help me to do that with clarity. We pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Oh, so let's see, I think it's been about a couple of months now. Late September, I believe, is when we made the, the first trip. I made a couple down since then. Uh, we went down to see some friends that we had not seen in probably over two years uh, in the Washington, D.C. area. So we went down to D.C. to, to visit them and to, to catch up. These are some very dear and, and close friends of ours. And just because of life and the busyness, uh, we haven't had a chance to connect. And that's just sometimes how life goes. Well, as we were down there spending time together and it came to be uh, dinner time, my friend Russ and I decided that uh, the best thing to do for the family was to go out and get some food. And so we decided to do that. And we went out to one of the places that I eat, uh, because if you don't know me, I have some food issues in my life. Uh, but we went out to eat at Subway to get, to get some food at Subway. And so uh, he took some uh, D.C. streets uh, and finally brought us to a Subway. I don't know how to get back there, even if you drop me off in D.C., um, just driving around. And uh, when we arrived, uh, we made our way inside, and there were a few people in line that we noticed, and there was a lady sitting at the table, and we found the end of the line and made our way over to that to wait for our turn to be served. Uh, and it particularly happened on that day that there was only one person working. Uh, I believe he was either the manager or the manager slash owner of the establishment. And he was having to not only fill the orders if you've ever been to Subway, but once he filled your order, he would then be the person to, to check you out. So it just kind of slowed down the process. And so we were in line, and as we were in line and we, we found that we had time, we just kind of started to catch up about what had been going on in our lives over the last two years. Then there were some events that started to unfold in front of us that uh, brought our conversation uh, to a halt. So as we were there, uh, there was a lady who was at the table who appeared to be about in her 60s, uh, and she began to engage in conversation with the, the young man who was standing in front of us, 
who was in line in front of us who had not yet been served, and he happened to look like he appeared to be in his early 20s. And the lady uh, uh, began to engage him in conversation and, and insist and say to him that, hey, uh, you shouldn't have to have waited this long to be served. The manager has done a bad job uh, because he hasn't taken the time to consider the fact that he should have help here, and you shouldn't have had to wait that long in line. To which the young man, just trying to be kind, disagreed with her and was like, no, that's not really his, his fault that I'm having to wait. And I mean, I think that was a wise decision. I mean, who wants to insult the person that's about to put their hands on your food? <laughs> if you're doing that, I would advise you not to do that. And so the lady became even more insistent, and she said, no, no, it is his fault. He, he, he should have thought about customer service, and he should have had another employee here so that you wouldn't have to wait this long in line. And of course, the young man tried to kindly respond and, and deflect away and try to alter, offer some alternative scenarios for reasons of why it could be that, uh, that the situation was the way it was. And then that's when something very unexpected happened. The conversation went in a decidedly negative direction. It was as if someone had internally reached inside of her and flipped on a switch, her anger switch. And she shifted from simply disagreeing to angrily hurling insults at him. I will not take time to repeat them because they're not appropriate for a Christian to say, nor in the context of a church setting. But I will say that she decorated her speech with all kinds of colorful expressions uh, that you might find in a dictionary under the definition of profanity. And as he sought to disagree with her again, it only sought to to escalate the situation as she became more vocal and louder and reached for dirtier words to call him. And just as it looked like she was about to leap out of her seat to take action for her disagreeing with her, uh, I had lost sight of the fact and forgotten that there were other people in line and that there was a lady at the register who simply turned around and said, that's enough. We don't want to talk that way. Let's go. And as quickly as the situation had begun, like a balloon that had been popped, it was deflated. The lady got up, joined her party, and they walked out of the door. Now, my friend from D.C., of course, because he's used to D.C. culture, he looked at me, he's like, brother, you all right? <laughs> and he's like, you know, I'm used to this D.C., brother. It's just how it gets down here. You know, I'm like, well, we don't get down like that in Harrisburg, but... but <laughs> Maybe we do, I don't know, but we, I, just, you know, I just haven't experienced it like that. Anyway, so, so I said, so, you know, it, it, it's, it's not a, I don't have a sense of fear. What I have right now is a sense of grief and, and sadness. I said I'm sad and grieved for, for, for both people involved. I'm, I'm sad for the young man because this brother was just trying to be nice uh, to the guy who was serving and trying to be understanding of the fact that things were moving slow, and they were moving slow, but he didn't want to insult the guy, and I think that's a good position we ought to have. We ought to have patience with people in light of the situations and understanding that there are things that contribute to that. But the other thing that made me sad is how broken must this woman have been that she couldn't even engage with common decency 
and with, uh, with someone who disagreed with her. And you wonder about society. Have people lost common decency such that when someone disagrees with them, they can't even engage in a polite manner? There's no love for their fellow man? Well, as we walked out to the car, I was left with a question, and as I was just pondering the events that had just happened, as I almost was traumatized by this event, I just walked away with how do you change a human heart so that it doesn't respond that way to the circumstances of life? Well, thankfully, God has done something. He's given the solution, and we find it in the Bible. And we begin with some very well-known events. But for this young Jewish girl who was most likely in her early teenage years, it was an unexpected encounter. It was unexpected because it was a non-human messenger sent from God that she encountered at a time she did not expect that ultimately would alter the course of her life. And so we're going to recount those events for you. We pick up in Luke's Gospel, chapter 1. And this is what we find written there. Uh, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel, of, the angel departed from her. Now, I would consider this to be most likely a frightening experience. Whenever a non-human messenger just appears in your life, it can be a very frightening experience. Experience, But as she engages this otherworldly visitor, she discovers through her conversation that for her, what, what had been on the horizon was in her near future, most likely within the year, she would be getting married. That's most likely where her thoughts were towards, and that was the big event, the next big thing in her life. But she finds out that there's another event that's on the calendar before this one. She's going to be making a slight detour by the town called motherhood. Because uh, as we read in the text, Gabriel informs Mary that God has selected her from all women on planet earth to give birth to a son. Now, there's nothing unusual about a woman getting pregnant and later having a baby. That's the normal course for human affairs here on planet earth. But this child would be different than other, any other child in human history. And the method of conception would be 
the only one to happen of this type in all of human history since the beginning of the world all the way until the very end of humanity uh, on the day of judgment. And so from the child we find out he's going to be unique because what he's going to do is fulfill promises that God had made to Mary's people long before Mary was ever born or even thought about. When her parents had a twinkle in their eye towards one another, God had long before that made promises. And then we also find out that this conception is going to be different than any other conception that anyone has ever had in human history. Because this one would not be accomplished through human means. It would be accomplished by the power of God's spirit. Their very one who had shaped the world out of chaos and brought it into order. That spirit would move upon her and do something unique in her life that would never be done again. And so those two things make this circumstance, which would otherwise be a usual event, unusual. Now, as we reflect on these familiar events during this time, well, while we have these Advent candles here, we're waiting for Christmas. I want to, for us to inquire about God. So we know that God is on the move because something otherworldly has happened in Mary's life. And we want to find out what is it that God is doing in this young Jewish girl's life. Well, we find the answer in another gospel written by the apostle who was beloved. His name is John. And for that, we turn to our main text. Now, as we come to John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, I need to make a note here. And that is this, that because of the verb that is used in the, the text here as the main verb, which is in the past tense, most commentators believe that it's not Jesus speaking here, but John the author. To put it in another way, if you have one of those Bibles that you grew up with in the way that you identify Jesus' words of the red letters, then this should not be in red in your Bible because it's not Jesus speaking, but the author John who's giving commentary in light of a conversation that has already happened. They, right before this, the context is that Jesus and Nicodemus, Nicodemus is a profound leader of the people. He's a ruler, a teacher, a well-known, and he's come to Jesus by night, and Jesus is going to reflect, on, to reflect to him what needs to happen in his life in order for him to enter the kingdom of God. And right after this, it appears that what John is doing is giving commentary, summing up Jesus' mission on the earth in light of what God wanted to, to happen. Let me re re review those words for you. So we, we, we read there these words as he sums them up for us, the mission of Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now from these two verses, we're going to learn three things about God's action. We're going to learn about God's action, more about it in depth, and we're going to see God's motivation as well as God's intention behind the action that he took in Mary's life. So I want to start off, first of all, with what we know from the text, that is God's action, because we've already read about what God did in Mary's life. And to do that, I want to approach the verse out of order. Um, so I want to look at the, the second phrase in the verse first, that phrase that says that he gave his only Son. So we know from this encounter that he has with that angel that the angel Gabriel has with Mary that ultimately she does become pregnant and in due time as she laid out in the video she did ultimately bear give birth to a, a son and they did name him Jesus and we find out that he does end up fulfilling a special role in God's plan. But this verse gives us greater insight on what's going on in Mary's life. 
And one of the things that we discover right away is that God is giving a very special gift when he uh, engages Mary and tells her that she's going to have a baby, that he is intending to do something, give a gift to the world. Now, the gift that we discover from this verse is that this gift is his son. Now, we know from the Old Testament, if you've read the Old Testament, you've encountered a phrase that lets you know that God has other sons. He has other sons. Adam, for instance, is one of God's sons. You'll read that in Luke chapter 3 when you run into the genealogy. He gets right back to the beginning. He says, Adam, the son of God. Uh, Adam is a son of God. The nation of Israel in the book of Exodus and other places is referred to as collectively the son of God. Uh, that's why when Matthew's gospel uh, he refers to the prophecy. He says, out of Egypt, I have called my son. And its initial use is referring to the nation of Israel. The nation is the son of God. And then we also find out that the heavenly beings are referred to as the sons of God. I'll show you one of those scriptures. So in the book of Job, which is probably, if not the oldest book in the Bible, nearly being the oldest book in the Bible, we find in the very first chapter, uh, these words written. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and the adversary, or here referred to here as Satan, but the adversary also came among them. Now, what we realize, though, is that this son that comes through Mary is different than all these other sons of God that we've already met in Scripture. Uh, he's different, and we know that because the verse tells us that in John 3, 16. If you look back at the verse, there's a word there that lets us know that this son is different. It's the word only. Here, only refers to the idea of one who is unique or one of a kind. It's the word that is used in reference to Isaac, not that Abraham didn't have other sons, but this unique son because he came as a result of God's work and promise, not like the other sons that Abraham had. And John has already shown us in earlier in his letter, two chapters earlier, the one of a kindness that this son has opposed to all other sons. Let me take you back to the beginning of the first chapter to show you that one of a kindness. John opens his gospel. And he starts off with these words. He says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So the Son of God that we find who's going to come through the womb of Mary, who is going to be named Jesus, existed before his birth with God and as God. Now, all other sons of God, as we discover from reading, are created entities. That God has created them and given them life. But this one, this son, he, he's not created. As a matter of fact, as Colossians tells us, he is creator with the Father and the Spirit. And what John is trying to get across by saying this, letting us know about this son is unique from all other sons of God, is that the gift that God is giving is priceless. And that when God gave this gift, he gave the very best that he had to give. Now the question becomes then, what would motivate God to give such a priceless gift to us? We find the answer in the first phrase of verse 16. It says, for God so loved the world. The text tells us that God's motivation for giving such a 
tremendous gift was love. He loved the world. Now, I find this statement shocking. And perhaps you don't feel that way, that you would think of this verse as shocking because you're familiar with the word. Perhaps you've heard it so many times that it has lost its, its sense of gravity for you. Uh, you've heard it, you heard it in Sunday school growing up or in children's ministry. God loves you. And they told you that every year. Perhaps you've been in church and the pastor said that time and time again, God loves you. And you lose the ability to feel the weight of John's words by him telling you that God cares, that God loves the world. So to kind of give you an idea of why I find it shocking, I'll have to recall some events that happened earlier in my life when I lived in Dallas. So when I lived in Dallas, uh, for most of my years, I lived, uh, when I moved out off campus and out of my relative's house, I lived just east of downtown, about a mile to a mile and a half outside of downtown. And one of the things that I had to do was to find a barbershop because uh, as an African-American male, my hair grows really fast and I have to keep it tight and short because that's the way my wife likes it. So I try to cut it off. And so I had to find a, a, a place to, to get my hair cut. And so I found a barbershop, thankfully, that happened to be uh, just around the corner. So where the apartment that I lived in at that time was in the middle of the street city block. And I was able to walk down to the end of the block, walk to the middle of the next block. And in this strip center was my barbershop. And so on this particular day, I decided to go to the barbershop because my hair was calling for it. And so I, I made my way down. It was a beautiful sunny day, not a cloud in the sky, uh, blue sky, just, just gorgeous. I walked down, made the corner, and I got down, and I realized that other people had the same idea that I had. It's a gorgeous day, a wonderful time to get a haircut. So when I walked in, you know, the shop is full. People are all in the chairs. There's three barbers in. So there's somebody in every chair. So I grab my number, and I go sit down. And there's just the usual talk that's going on. Uh, as it always happens in the barbershop, various things that we are talking about and I'm listening to being discussed in the barbershop. But while we're talking and we're just sitting there and I'm sitting by the window, all of a sudden, hail, nickel to quarter size hail, starts to fall out of the sky. And it falls with such force and it's falling so fast that it begins to break signs, lights, and dent cars. And as suddenly as it starts, it just stops. And we're looking out the window wondering if it's the end of the world. Because, <laughs> I mean, who knew that out of a clear blue sky, hell would just fall out of the uh, air? It was shocking. And that's exactly what's going on in this verse to a much greater degree. Something that we should not expect is happening uh, in these events. And let me offer you two reasons for why I come to that conclusion. First of all, it's a reading of the Old Testament. We know from the Old Testament reading that God loves Israel. And with the Old Testament in mind, we know that the focus of God's love, although there are hints of it in other places, but the focus of God's love is this people that he has uniquely created for his namesake and for his own glory and form, and they're the apple of his eye. And so thus we come out of the Old Testament and we would one would expect that what John might have written here and we would not be surprised to find that it is actually what we would expect to read in light of the Old Testament and Israel being the focus of God's special love is that God so loved Israel that he gave his only son. However, that's not what we find in the text. We read that God's love encompasses the entire world, that God cares more uh, than just about Israel. His love is spread out to the broader world. 
He's not just concerned about the welfare of Abraham's biological descendants. He also deeply cares about the rest of humanity, and so he acted. That's shocking. That's shocking that the world would be part of that. The second reason in the text that I find this shocking is because of the two words on the opposite sides of love. It's the object of God's love that makes this statement shocking. Notice what the text says. It says the world. Here the world in John's usage refers to rebellious and wicked humanity as the object of God's love. Now just simply think about all the times perhaps that you've watched a TV show or watched a movie and in there they took Jesus' name and substituted it in for a word of profanity. Simply think about all the websites and all the things that are said about God that are negative right now that are on websites that you can go to and they have horrible things to say about God and comments are being added on every day. Think about all the horrible things that go on, the evil that happens every day in our world. Sometimes it's in the context of a home. Sometimes it's in the context of a business like Subway. Sometimes it's in the halls of government. Think about all the lies the neglect, the abuse, the exploitation, the theft, the selfishness, the greed, the perversion, the murder, and the list goes on. See, one of the things that humanity has at least proved about itself is that humanity is wicked and undeserving of God's love. And by the scripture's testimony, we have, by our own actions, declared ourselves to be enemies of God. And so the psalmist, many years before we ever lived, captured this sentiment when he wrote these words. He said, look, God looks down from heaven at the human race to see if there's anyone who is wise and seeks God. But everyone rejects God. They are all morally corrupt. None of them does what is right, not even one. Yet we find that God loves this undeserving, evil humanity with a love that is unmatched by anyone in human history. And it's this thing that Paul marvels at in Romans chapter 5 when he writes these words. He says, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a person, a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What Paul is saying, let me sum it up, is this, that human love, even on its best day, pales in comparison to the love that God has shown the world in giving the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus has shown in giving his life for sinners. And yes, that does mean that God loves you because you're part of the world. Paul personalizes in Galatians chapter 1, verse 20, when he personalizes, said, God loved me. Uh, he, Christ's sacrifice was for me. When Christ died on the cross, he had me in mind. Now, we have to ask the question, how is it that God is able to love the world when we are, as the writers of the New Testament, prohibit us from, from loving the world? Dr. Carson, D.A. Carson, New Testament scholar, gives a great uh, answer this, to this when he says, Christians are not to love the world with the selfish love of participation, but God loves the world with a selfless, costly love of redemption. 
So let me sum up my point here. God has selected Mary so that he could send Jesus because he loved the world with an amazing, undeserved love. That's why he was motivated to do that. Which brings me to God's intention. What is it that God intended to do by sending his one unique son into the world? We see his intention in the last part of verse 16, and then it's restated for us in verse 17. Let me remind you of the words. John wrote that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So God's intention was to rescue humanity, wicked humans, from perishing on the day of judgment. Humans justly deserve uh, judgment because of the behavior that we've done, the sins we've committed, and we testify to that every day. But what God wanted for humanity was to give us life. And this life comes to us by faith in his one and only son and by trusting in him. Or as Peter puts it, what God said is the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That God's heart is that people would repent so that they might find life. That's what God wants to give humanity is the gift of life that comes only through his son. And what is this eternal life? Well, Jesus defines it for us in John chapter 17, verse 3. And Jesus said this in his prayer to the Father, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So Jesus defines eternal life in light of living in a fellowship relationship with God and Christ, which means that a person can only gain access to immortality by being in an ongoing right relationship with the immortal God and his son, Jesus Christ, who gives the gift of immortality here referred to as eternal life to those of whom he chooses. If I were to put it succinctly, it would be this. No Jesus, no life. No Jesus, no life. The first being K-N-O-W, the second being N-O. Now, how do we reconcile this fact that the world stands under God's judgment for our sins, and yet is an object of God's great love. Dr. Carson here helps prove uh, helpful yet again. He writes this. He says, this dual stance of God is commonplace in biblical theology. The holy God finds wicked actions to be detestable things, but that does not prevent him from crying out. Do I take pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord? Rather, Am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? Similarly, in the New Testament, if it is true that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, and if the wages of sin is death, it is also true, wonderfully true, that the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, Christians are not born Christians. They were by nature, like the rest of humanity, objects of God's wrath. And despite this desperate status, they were made alive in Christ because of God's great love for them. This God who the Bible describes as one who is rich in mercy. See, apart from God's love for the world, the world that stands under his wrath, no one would be saved. Now, let me answer the question I posed to you at the beginning of this message. 
How do you change a human heart so that it responds rightly to others in a loving way as God would desire? We find it in Mary's answer to the angel at the end of the text that I read from Luke. After Mary understood what God's plan was for her life, she responded with humility and acceptance. Notice what the text says, Luke chapter 1, verse 38. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your, to your word. When, like Mary, we understand what God's plan is for our life, that we're to humble ourselves and receive the gift that God has given. Here, his gift of love in the action of giving his son, Jesus Christ, by faith. And when that happens, something else happens. God gives us his spirit, and his spirit comes into our lives, and he changes our hearts. And so Paul said, in light of that, in light of that reality, let me tell you something about a believer who receives God's love that comes through us through the person and work of Jesus Christ. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The Spirit did in what he did in Genesis, he now does today in people. He makes them new creation. And what does a life that has been made into a new creation look like when a person has received the love that comes from God through Jesus Christ? Well, we heard the answer when the Advent candle was read, right before the Advent candle was lit and the text was read. And this is what it says. Let me remind you. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God has, was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we, ought, we also ought to love one another. What John says is this, that in light of the reality of the love we have received, this extravagant, undeserved, wonderful love that has come in the priceless gift of God giving his son for our sins so that we might have life on the day of judgment, then the right response, what happens in the person's heart is, in light of the fact that they have received the love of God, it so changes them that they become loving toward others. That the Bible doesn't know of a Christian who's not loving. The Bible's uh, ex expectation is that if God has worked in your heart and you've received God's love, then you become an instrument or a vessel to display that same love to the rest of the world around you. Which means, James gets into, it's not just about loving people and what we say, but in loving people and how we treat them and what we do. He says this is the natural response that comes from a person whose heart has been transformed. They've been transformed by the love of God and thus they become loving people. That ought to be true of you if you're a Christian. And when that does happen, it has a profound effect upon those around us. So I ran into this story about a man, true story about a man who had uh, been friends with his neighbor. Uh, like most of us are friends with our neighbors, and in his particular neighborhood, uh, the neighbor who was next to him was a Christian, and he was not a Christian. But over a time of his interaction with his neighbor, he found out and discovered 
uh, that his neighbor was a Christian through their conversations. They had had many conversations over the back fence, just checking on one another. They had done things that neighbors do, like, you know, lending each other uh, lawn equipment. Uh, you know, when one person goes on vacation, making sure the trash cans get put back in, doing that kind of stuff for one another, one another over the years. But all the time throughout all their conversations, he had no interest in Christianity or the fact that his friend was a, a churchgoer. He, he was not interested in all in any of those things. Uh, but there was a point in his life where a crisis happened. His wife got cancer, and three months later, she died. And in light of that, in light of the events, he wrote a letter in to the website to let them know what had happened. And this is what he wrote. He said, I was in total despair. I went through, went through the funeral preparations and the service like I was in a trance. And after the service, I went to the path along the river and walked all night. But I didn't walk alone. My neighbor, afraid for me, I guess, stayed with me all night. He didn't speak. He didn't even walk beside me. He just followed me. When the sun finally came up over the river, he came over and said, let's go get some breakfast. I go to church now, my neighbor's church. A religion that can produce the kind of caring and love my neighbor showed me is something I want to find out more about. I want to love and be loved like that for the rest of my life. Brothers and sisters, when we live out in response to the love that we have received from God in Christ Jesus, and it has so transformed our hearts that we live in a loving way towards the world around us, it has a profound effect upon them. What is my encouragement to you this Advent season as you reflect upon what God has done for you in Christ? Let it move you to be a loving person this season and into next year. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the truth of your word, and I pray, Lord, that we recall what you have done for us in Christ this Christmas season, and may it uh, transform our hearts afresh and anew. May we be astounded and awed by what you have done. It was your initiative that gave Christ. We had no way to compel you to do that. You could have justly left us in our sins and judged us, on the day of judgment and you would be, be, have been right but because you are loving and you are caring you did something that was unthinkable that we could have never guessed you surprised us and you gave us your one unique son and Lord Jesus you came you lived among us without sinning and then you so willingly gave your life on our behalf so that we could be forgiven of our sins and so that we could have this wonderful gift of immortality that comes through you and you've given us hope for resurrection from the dead so many precious gifts that come to us not because we deserve them but because you're loving and kind and merciful may we remember that this Christmas season and may it so impact our hearts that it affects the way we treat others around us we pray these things in Jesus precious name amen